2: My family and I come to Port Aransas a few times a year. It's one of my most favorite vacations because we rent a condo and we always invite my parents to stay with us. And we get to hang out on the beach. You'll meet my parents later. We drive through Aransas Pass to drive onto the ferry that will take us to Port A in just 15 minutes. On the ferry, my girls love to keep a lookout for dolphins in the bay. So you're looking for dolphins will be
3: right out, somewhere around in here.
2: Did you see one? No. Is there one over
3: there? I see
1: splashing
4: in the water. You
2: <laughs> Okay. Not a lot has changed since the 1930s. Port Aransas is still a tourist town, and Aransas Pass has never really been able to compare, although there are fishing boats that you can charter there. In Rancis Pass during Prohibition, it seemed pretty easy for some folks to go missing and never be found. But those were people who didn't have loved ones looking for them. That was not the case for 18-year-old Dorothy Simons. Dorothy went missing on the final Thursday of July 1931. Forty hours later, on Saturday, August 1st, someone discovered a body. Only one hand was visible because the rest of the corpse was buried in the mud near the ocean. The body was found by a man and his family who were camping nearby. He raced to the police station and reported what he found. Local law enforcement officers responded immediately. The body was covered with sea moss and shells. It was lodged in a bar pit, which is a stretch of still water going off to the side from a river or a lake. The police climbed to the east side of the seawall channel, which was nearly 400 yards south of the Aransas Harbor Terminal Railway tracks. Precision and attention to detail are crucial at any crime scene. Investigators and first responders and crime scene analysts have to protect the site from contamination. And often, the victim will lay there for hours while the team gathers evidence. And then after all potential evidence has been collected from the scene, the removal of the body has to be expertly executed. Fred Burton is a former federal agent, and he's been an investigator on numerous high-profile cases. He says that doing all of that is sometimes tough for police in small towns with few resources, particularly in 1931.
3: There's no van with crime scene analysts showing up in white suits. You're left your own skill set, which is very limited in that time frame, to do the best you can to uh, bring the body out of the mud In all probability transport that body to the funeral home where you're going to try to do your best to recover whatever physical evidence is remaining on the body and hopefully that has an ID. You know, something as basic as not knowing who this person is might be, you know, a factor during that time period. In a
2: town as small as Aransas Pass, news travels fast. The police at the scene must have known about Dorothy's disappearance. Agnes Simons had reported her daughter missing just two days earlier. Her friends reported that Dorothy was wearing her black and yellow bathing suit under her dress. Agnes also said that both she and her husband told Dorothy to skip swimming at night. It was too dangerous. If only Dorothy had listened. When the authorities carefully pulled the body from the bar pit, it turned out to be a woman. A woman clad in a black and yellow bathing suit. An official identification of the body would have to wait, but the color of the bathing suit was enough the local sheriff knew that this was Dorothy Simons. But there's one thing that they couldn't have known at the time. Did she die from an accident like drowning or was it murder? The study of criminology is an important part of my job as an investigative journalist and it's one of my most favorite parts. I talk a lot about criminology in my books. It's an evolving academic discipline that goes beyond inquiry into crimes and criminal behavior. Criminology includes the study of sociology and psychology, anthropology, economics, and statistics. That's a lot to juggle when you're sorting out a crime. I've talked to many criminologists over the course of my reporting and teaching career. I find the work totally fascinating, and I'm particularly interested in their science-based approach to criminal justice and social policy. In researching Dorothy's case, I wanted to focus on a particular aspect of criminology. It's called victimology. Paul Holes is a former cold case investigator, and he was one of the people who helped solve the Golden State Killer case. Paul is an expert in victimology. Is that one of the ways that we go from the victim to figuring out who the killer was? Explain that for me.
5: Right. Victimology is a very broad term. It refers to, of course, who the person is, you know, their name, their background, where do they work, their education, you know, to try to establish, okay, this is the type of person the victim was. The victimology also encompasses their social circles. It encompasses their personality. And if they were confronted by an offender, how would this person respond? Are they a fighter? Are they somebody who would go passive and basically allow the offender to, command them. So that plays into not only the investigative side, it also plays into the behavioral assessment of what happened between the offender and the victim.
2: Why do we care so much about a victim's habits or her personality?
5: Well, based on the victim's personality, this is how we would expect that person to respond when confronted with a violent situation, a crime situation. And then, of course, there's risk assessment in terms of is this victim somebody who is partaking in certain aspects that is elevating their likelihood of becoming the victim of a crime? Is this a a person that is going out on the street corner in the middle of the night and buying drugs? They're more likely to be shot by a drug dealer. It elevates their risk than somebody who never does that. So understanding victimology is huge.
2: Fred Burton also relied on victimology during his own investigations. If I talk about when you're investigating a murder, we know who the victim is, but we're not sure who the killer is just yet. What does it mean if I'm saying that you are, as an investigator, looking into the victim's
3: sphere, their world, From a victimology perspective, I I think a a lot of cases and a lot of investigators tend to want to focus on the suspects, meaning as you step back and let's say you have a body, you want to tend to find the person that was responsible for that murder. And what you don't see a lot of at times, especially in, in, in rural departments or departments that don't handle a lot of homicides, is comprehensive understanding of the victim. Talking about victimology got me thinking about a
2: story that's really attracted attention over the past year the Gabby Petito case. Gabby was an aspiring YouTube star and she was really active on social media. Gabby and her fiance set out on a cross country road trip in June of 2021. And by August, just two months later, Gabby Petito had gone missing. Remember that in the last episode, we talked about how young women go missing more than any other age group. Gabby's disappearance caused a media frenzy. The 22-year-old was just a few years older than Dorothy. Karen Kilgareff covers true crime on her podcast, My Favorite Murder. She's also my colleague and an executive producer of Tenfold More Wicked. We talked a long time about the Gabby Petito case. Let's talk about Gabby Petito, just because I want to get your impression on this. What do you think made this case so interesting to people? Well, first of all,
1: there's lots of things. She was a YouTuber. She was young and blonde and pretty, which we all know. The media has been driving that story since day one. And we all know that. That's always prioritized. The cynicism of that is just a reality. It should change. It needs to change. It hasn't yet. Karen's making an important point
2: here. And it's one that I find particularly disturbing and that Derica and Natalie Wilson have built their careers on. They are sisters-in-law and they co-founded the Black and Missing Foundation in Maryland. It's a nonprofit organization that draws awareness to missing persons of color. Instead of saying, why are people of color ignored to a certain extent when they are missing? I want to flip it and say, can someone explain to me why missing white woman syndrome is in true crime and why Gabby Petito is the perfect example of why this has happened with this case?
6: Well, I, I think it, first and foremost, you know, missing white woman syndrome that was coined by the late great Gwen Eiffel, unless It's a white female, blonde hair, blue eyes, fairly attractive. The case just isn't sensational enough. And we see this so often, so many years, and it's bound to happen again. It's like there's this media obsession and and law enforcement. When you look at Gabby Petito's case, I mean, you had every police jurisdiction, every federal jurisdiction, All the resources, the cadaver dogs, the drones, um, the divers, the four-wheelers.
2: Meanwhile, it's the families of people of color who most frequently don't get answers.
6: Yes. So there has been a longstanding um, issue where these cases, one, aren't taken seriously by um, law enforcement, and, and they are the first line of defense or the first gatekeepers to getting that media coverage. Um, there is a stereotype that, you know, our missing are involved with some type of criminal activity or, you know, their children who left home voluntarily or ran away. So again, the cases aren't taken seriously, there are no amber alerts for them. So there's definitely no media coverage at all. But this has been a long-standing issue and we're trying to change the narrative to show that these are missing mothers and fathers, you know, our valuable members of our community. It's unbelievable. So it really isn't. I, I would say that it's race based. It's like, damn, if you, you know, if you're black and brown and you're missing, you're basically on your own, you know? That's how I view it. And we have to change that.
2: I'll go into more details about this issue later and we'll talk about some of those cases. Both professionally and personally, I think it's a conversation that deserves more attention, a lot more. Karen Kilgareff has covered a wide range of missing person cases and not all of them involve attractive young white women. I wanted to get her take on another reason why the Gabby Petito case has gotten so much attention. I just wonder if we would have gotten the same reaction if it was both of them who were missing. If we don't know who the killer is and we're trying to find this woman, would we have gotten the same response as if we knew who the boogeyman was and
1: he's on the run somewhere? Yes, it that was a manhunt story. It's a little bit horrifying. Never before have we seen it discussed almost real time, which I think is incredible. And then there was the man on the run aspect of it. It was like, could we catch him as a nation, you know, as a group of people tracking this? What if... In the alternate reality, he didn't do it, and people are tracking him down and believing that he did do it. There's a lot of issues. Are we innocent until proven guilty? That issue comes up in this
2: case, too. A formal investigation began in Aransas Pass almost immediately after Dorothy's body was discovered. Sheriff Frank Hunt led the inquest into her cause of death. And when he made his findings public... They shocked the residents of the town and a collective sense of fear and suspicion would frighten just about everyone. The coroner lifted the sheet covering Dorothy's unclothed body. Of course, he had seen a cadaver before, but this seemed really different. She was young. She didn't seem to have an at-risk life. But the wounds on her body told him a story. He picked up Dorothy's right arm. It was bruised. Her throat seemed to have internal bleeding, like she had been choked, and her chest was caked with blood. He looked inside her nose. It was filled with blood. Blood was dripping down her face. This was a violent death, not an accidental drowning. The coroner believed that someone strangled Dorothy to death while he or she held her underwater. He was certain that it was murder. Over the next few weeks, the sheriff and his deputies continued investigating the death of Dorothy Simons. Here's what he says happened. There was an argument, and the killer strangled Dorothy with their hands. Before she died, they shoved her head under water. And once she stopped struggling, they needed to cover up the murder. They dragged Dorothy through the water and then dragged her over a man-made seawall separating the channel from a small area of breakwater on Redfish Bay. That must have taken a tremendous amount of effort and someone pretty strong. The killer was likely a man. He dug a shallow grave near the edge of the water. The whole thing was covered with heavy seaweed. He placed her body inside the grave and covered it with sand and more seaweed. Seashells became entangled with the seaweed. It was a horrible final resting place for Dorothy Simons. The coroner slid a document onto his desk, a death certificate and I found it. In cursive writing using a black pen, he added details from Dorothy's life. She was born on May 7, 1913. She was female, white, and single. Agnes had told the coroner where she herself was born in Indiana, but Agnes didn't know where Dorothy's father was born. Seems kind of odd, but Ralph Johnson was so shady, it doesn't surprise me. Then near the bottom of the document, it read, Cause of death was as follows, from violence, strangulation, homicide. Dorothy Simons had been identified. Her death had been officially declared a murder. And the search for Dorothy's killer was just getting started. Dorothy Simons was buried on August 2nd, 1931. It was a Sunday the same day when Dorothy would typically be singing in the St. Mary's church choir during services. She really loved doing that. But this Sunday, most of Aransas Pass mourned her death instead. The Simons family was devastated. Agnes, her husband Howard, and their sons David and Joe watched as Dorothy was laid to rest. Agnes in particular would be haunted by this day for decades. She never seemed to be able to heal from the loss of her only daughter. There was no closure, no goodbye, just sorrow for now. J.B. Simons was Dorothy's nephew.
7: I've never asked mom, you know, has grandma ever talked to you about Dorothy or anything like that? It just kind of left it in the air.
2: Joe's widow Helen talked to me about how difficult it was to discuss the tragedy with her
4: mother-in-law Agnes. It was just too painful. She told me that she it, she was killed. And I said, Well, I've understood that. I'm sorry to hear that. It sounded like she was a pretty nice girl. And she piped up she was a perfect girl.
2: Even into adulthood, Joe Simons barely talked about his older sister.
4: He, he talked about it after we got to talking about it. When he finally told me he had had a sister that was killed, I said, well, how was she killed? You know, you're going to ask. And uh, he said, well, come right down to it. I guess you'd call her she was murdered. And I said, oh, what a horrible thing. No wonder Agnes had an attitude about things and people.
2: My conversation with Helen Simons made me circle back to the start of the season. I mentioned how little the Simons' descendants knew about their family's heartbreaking legacy and how a distant family tragedy can reverberate through generations. I tracked down some of the relatives of Dorothy's older brother, David. David and Joe have both died. I had a long conversation with David's daughter, Nancy. I started calling it the trickle-down effect, and it seems like a ton of bricks landing on several different families in the future based on what happened.
4: I think that's a good analysis, especially since Agnes, the mother of Dorothy, was so terribly devastated, and obviously that affected how her family moved on and then how they moved on from there. J.B. Simons
2: and his mother Helen agree that Agnes was really affected by Dorothy's death and her reaction really affected her son Joe. On one
7: Mother's Day, we were in church and the very first time I ever saw my father cry, the men in the church were standing up giving testimonials about how much they loved their mother and what their mother meant And My dad stands up and said, I'm really glad you all can say those kind of things because I've never heard my mother ever say, I love you. So that kind of stuck with me.
4: No, that's true. That's pretty tough. Yep. Yeah, I mean, poor Agnes, my goodness. Yeah, she had a hard life.
2: Do you think that if Dorothy had not been killed, that Agnes would have been a different person?
4: Oh my goodness, yes. Absolutely. In what way?
7: Hmm. She'd been happy.
2: The sheriff held an official inquest into Dorothy's murder, but boy, was it fast. He quickly arrested their main suspect just shortly after her body was discovered. It was her on-again, off-again boyfriend, Newton Yarberry. Sheriff Hunt placed Yarberry under arrest, and then he was transferred to the county jail in Stinton, Texas, a small town about 25 miles west of Aransas Pass. Local press, of course, jumped on the story the media reported that Newton had been dating Dorothy off and on for about two years. That put him at the top of their list of suspects. I uncovered conflicting accounts of Newton's character, but some definitely made him seem untrustworthy. J.B. Simons had heard them too.
7: My father had a conversation with a lady in Amanda's Pass. The town was very, very sure that Yarborough killed her. He was known to be somewhat of a bully and an arrogant little crap.
2: I alluded to this earlier. There seemed to be a general sense of distrust surrounding Newton Yarbury. Or maybe I should say confusion. Newspapers had printed inconsistent information about his age and his profession. It's almost as though he didn't want people to know who he really was. Maybe he didn't want people to know his business. Maybe because he harbored a frighteningly dark side. Aside that Dorothy was unaware of until it was too late. And there were more discrepancies in the press. Well, more of an attempt to highlight that Newton was a Yarbury because the Yarburys were a really well-known family in Aransas Pass. Newton was the son of Mr. and Mrs. Alex Yarbury. They were very respected residents of Aransas Pass. And they were good people, pillars of the community. At least that's what people said. Even decades later, some locals still talked about the Yarbury's good reputation. On a visit to Aransas Pass, J.B. Simons met a woman who actually knew them.
7: Yes, she knew that the Yardbury's were, I think her term was upper crust, which is kind of strange for Aransas Pass. <laughs> and uh, she, she made the comment about the mayor had gone around to all of the people that were either owners of businesses and and bankers and that kind of stuff and had them sign a document saying how much Newton and the family were upstanding citizens. had no problem with them.
2: The sheriff brought Newton Yarbury into the interview room and stared at him. This was his main suspect, the man who likely killed sweet and lovely Dorothy Simons. Newton seemed bright, and if he were innocent... He would do his best to help the sheriff, right? No, he refused to talk. One caveat here. Innocent people do refuse to talk to the police, and they do call attorneys. My father always told me to call an attorney first if I were ever arrested. Newton Yarbury remained calm throughout his arrest and his time in jail, but he refused to make any kind of an official statement to investigators. But his father, Alex, was willing to talk to the authorities. He claimed that Newton was at home the night that Dorothy disappeared. That's a lousy alibi, by the way. I think that most fathers would probably lie to protect their sons, especially if they thought they were innocent. Earlier, I mentioned the idea of being innocent until proven guilty. It can be hard to keep that in mind, especially when you have a strong suspicion that someone is guilty. The sheriff thought that Newton was guilty, but he needed more evidence. That's one of the hard things about the law. There's a difference between thinking someone is guilty and being able to prove it. My dad always said that. Legal professionals deal with dilemmas like that all the time. I asked defense attorney Bill Allison about his approach to complicated cases where everyone suspects his client. It must be unpleasant to defend someone who has done something heinous. How, as, a, as any defense attorney, how do you reconcile that?
0: You're talking about the age-old question of how can you represent that guy? I don't think we'll ever solve that. I never had any problems with it. I had kind of two rules. One was that my job was to defend the despised. That was my job, and I liked doing it. I got a certain thrill out of being pretty much out there on my own, and that I was the only person who could stand between this man and whatever the power the government could bring forward.
2: But that's part of defending people. That's your job. And everybody deserves a defense no matter what they've done, no matter what we think, because that's the way the criminal justice system works.
0: The only way to deal with them was to just be slightly better at what you did and know your procedure, know your evidence. Those are two things that if you can get a handle on them, you pick up a lot of advantages over the other person.
2: So Mr. Yarbury had given Newton an alibi. His son was home with him and his wife all night. But there was a problem. Newton's mother was asked to give a separate statement and it was pretty different. Hattie Yarbury told the sheriff that she had last seen Dorothy on Thursday, July 31st. Dorothy had visited Newton around 1.30 that afternoon. And after they talked, Newton walked Dorothy home in the early evening. That's what his mother said. Newton then returned to his parents' house for dinner around 7.30. According to Mrs. Yarbury, Newton left after supper, but he was home by 9.30. So he was gone for less than two hours that night. She said he went straight to bed. The next morning, he was at the breakfast table by 8 a.m. Clearly, something's not right here, Mr. Garberry gave the impression that his son had been home all night long, but his wife acknowledged that Newton had left the house, even though it wasn't for very long. Their stories were clearly inconsistent, which makes me wonder, did Newton's father just forget those details? Or was someone lying? This feels like a good time to start on a list of suspects. Obviously, there's Newton. There's just no solid evidence to tie him to the crime. But Dorothy was very popular in town, and she had many friends, and some of them were men. Maybe she had been out with someone other than Newton that night. And maybe that someone had a serious jealous streak. We know that Dorothy's biological father had once threatened to kidnap her. Was Ralph Johnson involved? Would he have really killed his own daughter? Or was this a random act of violence, What if a stranger had wandered into town, someone who was capable of murder? If your mind works the way mine does, and I know most of yours do, you might be wondering how there could have been so little evidence. If this were a crime of passion, how would the killer have gotten away without leaving any latent clues? Or you might even start to wonder if we're actually dealing with an experienced killer. Paul Holes knows a lot about those.
5: Over the decades, I ended up being involved in many, many cold cases that had a broad spectrum of different types of circumstances. But my specialty generally was leaning towards the serial predator, the fantasy-motivated predator.
2: Well, and I think that's why you're going to be really helpful for me
5: in this cold case. So your intelligent offender can do some things that oftentimes I've seen investigators or even other experts make the mistake of, oh, this person must have done this before. Not necessarily You have deep thinkers out there that commit crimes. And the first time they do it, they do a good job.
2: There's another name on the suspect list, one that I didn't really expect. Michael Strain's grandfather, Bill Strain's dad.
1: I think my dad said that my grandpa had testified. He he also remembered my grandfather had been questioned, that they had come and I think asked my grandfather to come down to the police station and talk with them.
2: He worked for a car dealership, and he occasionally asked Dorothy to help with deliveries.
1: Dorothy would sometimes go with him and drive a car for him to drive back. I remember hearing my mother tell him that people were apt to talk if he were out in a car with a young single girl.
2: Michael stopped reading the excerpt to clarify something for me.
1: It's not really clear there. He's talking about my grandfather. He made it sound like it was a lot of times that uh, when my grandpa would go to sell a car, he needed to ride back, and that Dorothy would uh, take another car and follow him, and then and then uh, you know give him you know then he would ride back with her.
2: Did that strike your dad as odd?
1: I don't think so, uh, but but it, 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 I, I think he thought that it would strike my grandma as odd that uh, you know, that she, and, and you know, he says here that she, uh, you know, she he remembers hearing her tell him, you know, that that could look real bad.
3: But not enough for
2: her to have... She
1: put her saying? foot down and go, "No, you can't do yeah. it." Yeah. Okay. Um, that must have
2: been horribly embarrassing
1: for her. I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, I, I don't think that was her first time with that, though. Probably. Uh, from what I understand of my grandpa's life before, probably there had been other embarrassments that, uh, you know, that had happened in a little town. When your husband drinks and goes to bars and you're the, the church lady, you know, I, I don't think that would be her first embarrassment ever.
2: That dynamic between Michael Strain's grandparents wasn't unusual for the time. In the 1930s, especially in small southern towns, women were often devoutly religious. But their husbands sometimes prioritized their secular interests. That's certainly true of the Simons. Dorothy's mother, Agnes, favored the Bible, and Howard, Dorothy's stepfather, preferred a strong drink. During the Depression, small-town churches were more than just houses of worship. With so many people struggling economically, religious institutions were a place of refuge also. Local churches provided a center for community events as well as social support. Maybe Dorothy attended St. Mary's Church because she was a committed Christian. Maybe she joined the choir to be social and to spend time with friends. Or maybe she just liked to sing. I asked Walter Banger what the religious landscape was like back when Dorothy was growing up. What about religion in Texas during the the Great Depression, the 30s?
0: Texas is very much a Protestant-dominated place then. There are Catholics, there are German and Czech and ethnic Mexican Catholics, it's mainly an ethnic faith then. But the overwhelming churches in Texas are Baptists, Methodists, and then to a lesser degree Presbyterians, sort of what we now call the mainline Protestant churches. And most of these Protestant churches were staunchly anti-Catholic.
2: Dorothy and her family were Catholic, and there were certainly hate crimes against Catholics in the 1930s. Ted Eubanks works for St. Mary Cathedral in Austin. He knows a lot about Catholicism in the 19th century. I asked him for the bigger picture.
7: You know, the anti-Catholic movement certainly was there. I also think it's always been this sort of total misunderstanding of the church. One is the power of the pope or the power he doesn't have within, within the church. And the second thing is just somehow that the Catholic Church is sort of mysterious, what goes on in that church. What do they actually, you know, they believe in the real body and blood, that sort of thing.
2: Oh, fearing something that's different.
7: Absolutely. So I think it was part ignorance, part Protestantism, part Popism,
2: you know, kind of a combination of all that. There had been violence against Catholics a decade earlier in the 1920s, including several high-profile cases involving the murders of priests in different areas of the country. Much of that widespread violence and intimidation came from the KKK. Members targeted Catholics, accusing them of being separatists and un-American. When the Klan's power began to wane in the 1920s, so did violence against Catholics. But still, the sheriff in Aransas Pass did need to at least consider whether Dorothy's death was because of her religion. Widespread speculation about the case engulfed Aransas Pass. There was too little physical evidence to arrest a murder suspect, let alone convict one. Local media outlets defended Yarbury. And that's a big deal, because unlike today's world with its fast-spreading internet content, in the 1930s, newspapers were the main source of information. John Bowers publishes the only paper in Aransas Pass. For a paper like yours, what is the role of a community newspaper in a small?
8: What we try to provide to our readers, our subscribers and all that, they're interested in seeing city news, school news, county news that applies to this end of the county. But our role mainly is to provide news in those three areas. People love to see what their kids are doing in athletics and academics. They want to know what the city's doing, whether it's bad or good. And most of the time, the city stuff is good. And we report the good news. We want to play the good guy, really. We don't want to be a bad guy. We don't want to assume that role. We want to paint a pretty picture. But we will report things that are going on that are not good. But we're not looking to crucify the city manager or crucify the mayor or any of that kind. No, that, that's not our role.
1: Has it been like
8: that no. for
2: the beginning? I mean, from the very beginning, this paper has been kind of like that. Yeah. An uplifter and, and... And
8: hometown newspapers. All hometown newspapers are that way. That's why they're, they're still doing so well. Because Metro papers, like The Caller, they report picky bad stuff, Metro news, bad news, the the protests. We had a little protest here. We covered it, but it it didn't amount to anything, but we covered it. We had a picture in the paper of it.
2: The power of the press can be extremely influential in places like Aransas Pass.
8: Now, what about crime? Crime in
2: in a small town? I mean, is that addressed in a small town?
8: We carry a police report weekly. Of all the arrests that are made each week and who all was charged with DWI, DW, DUI, drug crimes, that kind of stuff. We carry that in our newspaper on page two of my Aransas Pass paper and page two of my Angleside paper. We have community calendar, which talks about all the events going on in the area. And then right below it is the arrest report of the police department. They provide that to us. And
2: well, doesn't that irritate people in yeah, this town? They love it. it w- <laughs> They and love it. Why? why do they love they it?
8: They just want to read about it. They just want to know. They want to know who got busted for what.
2: But what if you were one of the people who have been busted? Then
8: that's too bad. It's public record. Once you get a ticket or you get arrested, it's public record.
2: Isn't that kind of a little bit of like a little public shaming?
8: But that's what the public wants to see.
2: Dorothy's public persona seemed
4: flawless, according to her family. She was really, really pretty. I've seen pictures of her. She was really pretty and she was perfect as far as her personality was because she was good in school but anyway um, she was highly thought of but after Dorothy
2: died, rumors swirled about a secret life, and her good girl reputation began to unravel
1: you know there's a there's an an old country thing about Texas that, you know, in a murder case, you know, you want to prove the person needed killing. And I don't, I don't know that the things they were talking about did that, but that, that really used to be a thing, you know, it's like, well, he was a really bad guy or whatever. He needed killing.
2: I've read these articles that just sound like she was raked over the coals. You know, Dorothy's habits of smoking cigarettes and drinking whiskey and swimming with boys.
4: Most people didn't have anything to say or they put her down. Like you say, for cigarettes, I did talk to one lady. She said every girl out there was smoking cigarettes.
1: <laughs> they brought out that uh, she smoked cigarettes. Uh, they brought out that uh, she drank beer. Her mother. They asked her, you know, did you ever see her drink whiskey? Well, yeah, I saw her drink a, you know, a shot of whiskey. And, and you know, I guess in 1931, maybe that was really scandalous.
2: It was really scandalous. Who was Dorothy drinking with? Was it someone capable of murder? Did she meet someone after she met Newton? Someone who wanted to take her for a walk on the beach? Now there were two key questions. Who committed this murder? And just who was the real Dorothy Simons? on the next episode of Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right.
0: The defense attorney's job is to try to undermine the credibility of her testimony. And that's a very unpleasant thing for a defense attorney. Oh,
4: she's a loose woman out there. And yet, I'm sure she had some issues with her mom being who her mom was.
2: Does this sound like someone who's done this before? Or is it possible that someone could be this organized this good just on the first go-round?
5: You could have somebody who has been involved in this body disposal process before.
2: My new book, All That Is Wicked, is available for pre-order now, including the audiobook. All That Is Wicked is based on our first season of Tenfold More Wicked. You might think you know the whole story of killer Edward Ruloff's crimes, but there's so much more. My book, American Sherlock, is also available. This has been an Exactly Right, Tenfold War Media production. Producers Jason Whaling, Laura Sobel, and Alexis Amorosi. Co-writers Laura Sobel and Kate Winkler-Dawson. Sound designer Eric Friend. Composer Curtis Heath. Artwork Nick Toga. Executive producers Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgareff, and Daniel Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can hear every episode one week early and ad-free by subscribing to Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Follow Tenfold More Wicked on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.